Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Tuesday morning and... I have to do a biggie today. I know I'm going to do this, but um, I'm going to do Rev Cook as a command performance because Rabbi Shane in Israel has been bugging me about it. It's just someone I've met through podcasts. And to make a long story short, gave me an offer I, I couldn't refuse. And uh, I've always hesitated to do it somebody like Rev Cook. Very complicated. But uh, I'll try I'll try. So this is uh, due to the support and sponsorship of Rabbi Shane and his crew. And uh, I think Big Shemesh. My Big Shemesh. So I'm going to talk today about the famous Rav Cook, controversial Rav Cook, who's somebody who was a rabbi in, in like many people, had two halves of his life. Uh, many people we talk about. Jolim especially have that kind of funny uh, split. He was one guy, he lived to be 70 years old. He died of lung cancer. He smoked too much. Um, you know, cigarettes. He lived to be 70, the, the, and he was basically two halves of his life, up to the age of 40 and after. So from the age of 1 to the age of 40, and then from 40 to, to 70. And to be perfectly honest, even that last 30 years, he conflate into two parts. From like 40 to 55, and 55 to 70. He became controversial in the very last part, not before that. Which is just interesting. Now, Cook was a... Uh, this is complicated. I'm just sharing you my opinions. That's all I'm doing. And uh, it's not possible. This is somebody... Obviously, you don't need me to tell you that this is like a series of 10 lectures. So to do it in a thumbnail way is uh, just interesting, challenging. The first thing you have to understand Ralph Cook is he was a Litvak, meaning born in Latvia, just north there, from a mixed marriage. Right? One side was Misnagdim, one side was Chabad. That's how it goes. And uh, there's a lot to talk about that, but I'm not going to go into details in this. So, somebody like this, in my opinion, and I'll say it a thousand times today, I'm just telling you what I think. In my opinion, somebody growing up like this, and he's a good boy, and all the rest of he's a real fun guy, you seek to harmonize. Not that his parents didn't get along, they got along. I'm just saying Hashkafa-wise. Because his part is misnagdim. they went back to Chaim Velazhener. He even had some grandfather, something like that, who started out a Velazhener, ended up a, a Lubavitcher. It's all mishmash in the family. So it's just very interesting. Now he himself never became Lubavitch. However, the ideas of Chabad and all that are, are, are there since his youth, together with the ideas of the, let's say, the misnagdim or something like that. So in my opinion... If you follow his life, this led to a desire to harmonize. I'm not talking about Elu Elu Debrugim Chaim. That's one way of doing it. But another way to say it's all part of a bigger whole. Now, how do you reconcile, you know, the Grohl with the Balatanya, you know, that, that kind of thing? The answer is you need mysticism. That's, I think, why he's drawn to Kabbalah and mysticism. Because then that's how you, you know, 
In Kabbalah, one, one and one doesn't necessarily equal two. Right? Two opposites aren't really opposites necessarily. Now, um, I'm sure if they want me to give my take on Rav Kook, I understand from that you want a historical context. Here's somebody who was born in 1865 and died in 1935. So he lived in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. Died just before Hitler. Now, in when he grew up, it's very interesting. He grew up, first of all, in Latvia. He's from a small town across the river from Vinsk. That doesn't mean anything to you. Right? That's all. And in Latvia and northern Lithuania, you had a lot of communities. Well, part of the community was Misnagin, part of the community was Lubavitch, and they got along, you know. It's it's not, a, you know, fights or anything like that. But if he's born in 1865, that's interesting. Rav Cook is born the year Abraham Lincoln was shot. <laughs> right? Um, that means he's growing up in the late 1860s and the 1870s. This was the maximum period of the Haskalah attack on religion. In the late 1860s, when Lillian Bloom and the others wrote their stuff, Orchus Talmud, and, and so many who don't even know what I'm talking about. They said, we're principal attacks on the Shulchan Aruch and on the uh, Gemara in ways that the Haskalah had never done openly before. And there's no question in my mind, Jeff Cook, whose father was a rabbi, the Rav, the Rav of this small community, and all of his life, remember, he's the son of a Rav, I'm talking about a communal rabbi, and that's his Natia. So, it's a time when um, ideas were banging around, because the attacks on the Jewish religion, uh, how shall I put it, summoned forth in counter-reaction the creation the first time of some kind of Haredi press and um, debating groups to try to counter the arguments against the Jewish religion. That's the, it's, it's, a, it's famously associated with the uh, newspaper Halavanon, which was, in other words, the Maskilim have their anti-From Hebrew newspapers, and now the From started their own anti-Maskilic, but nevertheless Maskilic Hebrew newspaper called Halavanon, in which they make the arguments in favor of religion. They grew up in a time of a clash of ideas. And big rabbis were writing articles back and forth, which is just interesting, because you don't usually see that today. Now, um, at the same time, in the 1870s, so this is a boy 5 years old, 10 years old, 15 years old, uh, it seemed, this was the time of our Alexander II, and there was a big push, you know the famous line, This is when Yalag Gordon wrote, wrote these ideas. This is when the biggest push was in to drop all the from shtick and uh, become part of Russia. Not convert, but find a way that you can, as a Jew, middle-class Jew, bourgeois, fit into Russian society. Something along the lines of fitting into America. And uh, at this time, in the 1870s, this still seemed possible. And so the idea of guys going to be a frummy and a sheba guy and a bunkfetcher and a botlin is like a turnoff. And the opposite, you should try to Europeanize. You should have your Jewish pride, but nevertheless learn Russian totally participate in, in, in the brilliant Russian culture, which was brilliant, and that sort of thing. Now, these are the ideas. I don't know, you know, who his parents were, but in the small town, they got the newspaper. They get, there's no question that they got the newspapers. All, everybody used to get Hamagi, Hatsvira, and so forth. At the same time, this is a boy who from, was a big Balkishian. He turned out to be a great genius. I don't know if you know this or not. Well, Cook was without question, in his time, one of the five or six biggest gedolim. I'm talking about the learning. 
to learn without question. You see? He's up there. Now, um, so he learned up a storm from the time he's a kid. But at the same time, while he's learning Gilvalila, and that's what he did, the world is changing around him. When he's 16 years old, which is an impressionable age, um, the pogroms broke out after the assassination of the Tsar in 1881. And uh, you see a wave of anti-Semitic violence all throughout Russia, which is supported by the Russian newspapers and, and intelligentsia. And all of a sudden, the Moskilim look like idiots. That was the Moskilim who said, oh, we can fit into Russia, and Russia will welcome us. And a little by little, the society's getting more and more liberal, and we'll, sooner or later we'll be like Western Europe. All this was exposed as a pipe dream. If anything, Russia moved hard to the right, and increasingly anti-Semitic after 1881. So what happens then? If you're young, and you're Jewish, and you're not turned on by the Fermi stuff, let's say you're that way. So what do you do? The idealistic youth, a lot of them went for Marxism of various sorts, um, which will make a better world. But Marxism involves getting rid of religion. Right? That's a basic sheet to Marxism. It's not the only part of it, but whether, whatever kind of socialism or uh, communism of the various forms, and there were all kinds of forms in Russia, uh, if you're a Marxist, part of that Ten Commandments is no religion. Um, there's only one exception for these different non-Jewish groups or movements to which the young could adhere um, and not, you know, be in principle opposed to religion and even, I would say, to separate Jewish national feeling. And that, of course, would be Zionism or proto-Zionism, 1880s, you know, the Chavetzian. Whatever you want to say about them, um, at least they want to do something Jewish. Now, here you have different perspectives. You can say, well... The opposite. The fact you want to do something Jewish is bad because you're going to bring in trafe ideas into there. Go out and leave us and and um, you know pursue your trafe ideas elsewhere. That's one way of looking at it. The other way of saying it's like it's no no anything Jewish they have you want to encourage, and anything unfirm that they do, let's work on it. You know, what I'm it's a work in progress. Let's work on it and try to little by little be makar with them. Um, this is the reason why you had those big gedolim. Like it was the and the Nesiv and the others who joined the Chovetzion, because they're hoping they'll be must be in it from from their angle. Okay, um, all I can tell you is that um, after the assassination of Tsar and the exposure of all this anti-Semitism, you saw that there's no future for the Jews in the Russian Empire. This is the largest Jewish community in the world by far. What was that sign? You know, you're a young person. What's the future hold? Um, what will happen to the masses? The majority of Jewish people. This was the burning question of the 1880s and 1890s. Now, uh, interestingly, by the way, this is when the Litvisha Yeshiva movement began, then a kind of reaction or unconscious reaction to this crisis. But, you know, Slobodkin, all the Tells, and all the others, this is, however, the Lithuanian Yeshiva movement was a, what I call a Noah's Ark, meaning we'll save a few people in the Ark and everybody else will drown in the Mabal. You understand? That, 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 that's what the issues basically uh, uh, turned out to be. You know, can't, can't stop everybody else. Uh, just gather whoever we can into the coastal yeshiva. Hopefully we'll keep them from and, you know, when the flood is over, if it's ever over, then we'll come out of the ark. Uh, that's a mahalach. You understand? But, uh, and as you know, this became the dominant view in the, uh, in the firm world. Um, but, uh, there's a price to pay, and at least it necessitates a, a change. 
temporary perhaps, but a change in basic hashkafa. Because what you're involved in, what it means is, you're giving up on Klal Yisrael as, as a, an ideal, as a hashkafa. Um, Klal Yisrael. Now this is something I mentioned, I'm sure, here before. I can't be the first time saying this. I just don't remember, but um, if you want to know what I'm talking about, I just opened the Mesil Sisharm to the part about the Hasidus. And uh, I'll read just this very brief paragraph. Hini roi l'chol chasid she is kavim b'maisel v'tobis dorakula. That what um, God wants is that every chasid who wants to go lift him, should have in mind that when he does a mitzvah, it should go to be mezaka the others. So the whole community is not going to be from, you're going to have the pietists, and you're going to have the prostitutes. You're going to have all different types of Jews. But they're all part of the Jewish community. And the job of the from is to do the best they can in terms of mitzvahs, so that that mitzvah that you do will be thrown into the kitty for the whole community, and it will be accounted as if the others did the mitzvahs. Okay? Okay? This is from the Silsi Sharm. Okay? And he says, That God expects the Jewish community to com- be composed of uh, saints and sinners. I repeat, saints and sinners. And he expects that the saints should have in mind to be mezake and mechaper, as he puts it, the sinners, okay? And that's why he says, by lulov, you know, yavu The old line, uh, we all know the two uh, famous images of the lulov, the, you know, the good Jew, the bad Jew, the good smell, the bad smell, but they're all supposed to be taken together, right? And similar with the katoris. You know this. Sheina kodesh baruchu chavitz ba'avn God does not want the bad people, the sinners in the community to be punished. The very interesting language he's using over here, right? That when you do your mitzvahs and you dive, that's what you're supposed to have in mind. Right? And he goes on and gives various examples. Okay? He gives various examples. And uh, he says, this, so basically, the bottom line goes like this. The Klaishra idea is, God wants, the most important thing is, is the Jewish achtas. Now, it's got to be an achtas of a certain way. So that the sinners say, we are sinners, and we recognize you are saints. And, you know, we're not calling ourselves the model Jews. You guys may be. But we still want to be part of you. And... You know, we help when we can, but in return, you dominate and do mitzvahs for us. Now, um, this is the old way it used to be for centuries, centuries in Klaistral. And if the Mesil's Sharm writes, he's just simply saying something that's hardwired into the community. This broke down in our lifetime, I mean, a hundred and some years ago, in time of Rev Cook. What, what happened was, people said, oh, yes, listen, the whole generation's going crazy. Everybody's going off the derrick. They're joining every movement and whatever you want to do whether it's Marxism or consumerism, whatever you want, you can't stop them. Like the famous story of Israel Salanter, the, 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 the stagecoach is running down the mountain, you can't block it. And so, only thing we can do is build Noah's Ark and save ourselves. Right? We hope one day when, when the flood is over, either the others will be gone or they'll see what their, their ideas were wrong and they'll come back to us. We'll still be there. 
You know, like Shangri-La, you know, still be there. So yeshiva, that, that became philosophy of the elite fish of yeshivas. And uh, in the 1880s, the yeshiva, by definition, is a separate institution. It's not the tzibor. Yeshiva is its own tzibor. So the perspective of the Rosh Yeshivas was the Noah's Ark. By contrast, the perspective of the Rabbonim, I mean the communal rabbis of old, uh, had to be different. Take a musical or somebody like that, or anybody. If it's the old days in Europe, it's not like you have in America today. This I'm trying to get across to you. It's very hard for my listeners to understand this, because we live in radically different sociological circumstances. I live in Baltimore, you live wherever you do. I have a shul, everybody in shul is a summer Shabbos. Yeah? Uh, when I was a kid, it wasn't like that, but it wasn't good. The non-Shomer Shabbos like, were the dominant group. Uh, today, because of the, the, the split, so half the Jews in Baltimore are from, half the Jews are not from, and one, has nothing, one group has nothing to do with the other group. You understand? Know it's, it's not really a Kali, so it's, too, it's the opposite. It's two, it's two groups, if anything. Um, but, and, and by the way, I'm the rabbi in my shul, the reform rabbis, the rabbi in his shul, the conservative rabbis, the rabbi in his shul, and so on and so forth, right? You know, in the old days, in, in time I'm talking about in Eastern Europe, there's one guy who was rough for the whole community. Um, all the famous names that you heard of in the past, that we said before, uh, the Dvar Ram, Yusuf Ochan, and uh, even the Nitziv, if you want to get down to it. Uh, I mean, you name it, you know, the Minsker girl, you know, whoever it is. Everybody in the community was part of the Kehillah in, in the days. That was the law. And many of them are not Shomer Shabbos. What are you going to do about that? You're the Rav. You're a big Tamachachim. You're a God of Ladar. What do you do when one-third or half, or maybe more than half of your community, is just not going to keep Shabbos? What are you going to do about that? You understand? Now, one way was to simply ignore. There's a certain type of rabbi of old. that <laughs> sat in the base medics with a few guys. And whatever everybody else said, they said, listen, I can't control them. I cannot control them. So, they'll do what they want to do. I can only doubt them that things will change. That's one way. The other way was to grapple with it, to engage with it. And uh, engaging means, I'm not talking about Kirov like do today. Kirov is converting. You're not Shema Shabbos. I'm going to be Mikar of you. Me, I'm going to flip you. <laughs> you get it? I'm going to flip you. You're going to switch from A to B. You used to be this type, and now it's going to be that type. But what about if that's not possible? Huh? Because by definition, anybody's in Kirov will tell you a certain population is shy to Kirov, to be Makarov. A certain population is not. Now, if somebody takes a Kirov professional, I imagine, I don't know, I'm imagining that what you're going to do is say, this, I'm going to save my resources for the three, four, five, ten, whatever people in there. This guy, this girl, this couple, this family, who has some shaykhs to the Kirov. And the others, I can't bang my head against the wall. They are where they are. They're not going to change. You see? But if you're Yitzhak Khan Spectre, for example, or uh, the Covenant Rav, or, uh, you know, Shmuel Mulliver, or whatever, even a Hasidic rabbi, you know, if you got people in the community, not going to keep kosher, not going to keep Shabbos, not going to do this, they'll tell you they don't believe in God, and they can prove to you why they don't believe in God. Look in this book and look at this thing, you don't have an answer to answer them. What do you do? What do you do? This was the challenge of the Rabbanus. You get it? How do you prevent the community from drowning in the marble? That's different than Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark is they're going to drown in the marble, but we're going to be saved. Here, how do you do, in other words, and maybe you'll succeed, maybe you won't succeed if you're in the rabbinate, but your job is, how do you, you're a rub of 20,000 people, let's say, or more. What do you do in terms of communal policy? Now, 
these Rabbanim, the best of them anyway, had to be Metakas Eitzah and operate in such a way in which they tried to do the best they could and to ameliorate the situation by trying to always introduce a little more traditionalness in lives. Maybe I can't get people to totally keep Shabbos. So let's see if we can get them to keep part of Shabbos. Maybe I can't get them to be kosher all the time. Can we get them to be kosher uh, part of the time? Of course, we never give up. And we hope one day that we'll move the Kashrus line forward, the Shabbos line forward, we'll, the Tarnas Mishpacha line forward. But right now I live in the real world, and instead of getting 100%, I have to be satisfied with 2%, and then move to the next 2%, and the next 2%. This was the reality of the Rabbanus if he went before the First World War. Rav Cook, who was the son of Rav, even of a small town, uh, never became Rashi, but that's not what his ambitions were. He could have been, you know, and tells they want him to be the Mashkir, interestingly. Uh, but he would identify with the Rabbanus and its perspective, and not with the Rosh Hashivas, um, who, uh, and, and I'll say this, the Litvish of Rosh Hashivas understood his perspective, and which was appropriate to his office. So the Rosh Hashiva Slobak would say like this, as a Rav, you have to do this and this. Me, myself, and I, since I'm running the Yeshiva called Slobodka, or Tells, or Mir, or, or, or Rodden, or whatever, in the Dalit Almas of the Yeshiva, this is how we operate. So these are two appropriate um, uh, policies, but they're appropriate to very specific institutions. Okay? Now, let's get a little biographical here. It's hard to explain all this. I'm just doing the best I can in a short podcast. You know, uh, Let me put it this way. Um, Ralph Cook, as I say before, was born in this small town. Uh, he grows up the son of the, uh, the, the rub of the community. Um, he wasn't listening when he was in Latvia, Coraland, which is always a little more Western, and uh, but he had pockets of piety. Rav Cook is mainly a product of not the yeshiva world because he only spent a year or a year and a half in yeshiva. You know what I said? He wasn't in yeshiva. He was in yeshiva for like for a year. That's all, right? He um, he was in uh, base matters guy. Let's put it that way. This is the old way that once upon a time existed, but in the, in the lifetime of Rav Cook, it disappeared. But when he was around 1870s, 1880s, it, 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 it was still there. And what that means is, this is the old school. You don't need a yeshiva. Let's say I live in Baltimore. Let's, let's pretend for a minute. Let's say it was me. And let's say I was 13, 14, 15 years old. Let's just pretend. And I want to learn. But you want to know something? I don't want to be under control of some mashkiach and some rebbe and this and that and the other. I want to learn the way I want to learn. Nothing stopping me from going and making a charusa with somebody, whatever I want to do, in some local synagogue. Let's say they are good at Baltimore. Just make it up. Let's say they are good at Baltimore. I can make up every day. The show's open. And I can make a morning seder of my own, an afternoon seder, a night seder, whatever I want to do, with whoever I feel like. If I feel like taking a break in the middle, I can take a break in the middle. If I feel like learning six hours and watching a movie, I can do I can do whatever I want. You see? And what's the curriculum? I make up the curriculum. How do you know how to make up curriculum? Maybe I don't. Maybe I do. I talk to others. And the time I'm talking about, the base manager would have other people in there, and you talk to older guys, and, say, and they would give you advice, like old soldiers give to new, new recruits. And this is the way many, many gedolim arose. Mr. Kleister, the Chazanich, comes to mind. Nengar uh, Yeshivas. Okay? In the case of Rav Cook, there's a whole long story, I don't want to get into it. He started out, uh, they say, being into Pilpul and all that, but then somebody put him on to uh, more Lumbus and Svar Yishara. 
Uh, that's, that's the story. But um, the fact that he's going to have an individualistic style, different than the average rabbi, is totally understandable in the fact that he is self-educated. He hooked up with this guy. He went to this small town. No, no, I'm not going to go through all the different places he went to. Went to this town and, and learned with this guy so and so long in this Kharusa. Uh, and then he moved to another town and then another rabbi in this Kharusa. And he would meet Rabbanim. This is the old way, I'm telling you. You're learning, learning, learning. Then you meet a Rav. And maybe the two you hit it off. And you end up talking and learning. He'll say, What'd you learn? I'm learning your vomits. Oh, you're learning your vomits. What about this and this? And you say that and that. And you say this and this. And then one thing leads to the other. And then the guy would say, You know, you should really uh, learn it with the Rajma or something like that. And that's what I recommend to you, you know. Or maybe say, Are you learning halacha? You should really use, uh, I don't know, you know what I mean? To skip the others and just do the toss. You know, whatever. Whatever the, the style was. And it's not, um, how shall I say, curricular. It's not organized. But it worked for those of them who worked. Uh, so he learns whatever he wants. And uh, basically, the story of a cook, I'll say again, he, uh, uh, yes, he was a genius. He was a genius. So basically, the approach he developed on his own was to go for massive bikias, covering gunshots and post giving everything. No, was memorizing it. This is what they used to do in Lithuania, the, the big guys. He used to cover whole shots and bobbling with Shalami, and eventually the other things, Sifra, 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 Tosefta, and all that stuff. That was all what we call Tanaitic rabbinic uh, Amoric literature. And you memorize the Rashis and the Tosas, and at one point you get to the Rishonim, you know, like that, and eventually you get to the Shulchanar. And Rav Cook was a big shock done, as they say, you know. He was a person that sat and learned all of his life. And, uh, you know, you have one of those photographic memory things. Now, uh, again, you're doing this on your own. But somebody growing up like him is not confined simply as a yeshiva guy would be. Just to going through shots. How advice somebody should go to old shots, especially memorize it. Now, that itself is a, a big uh, task. But eventually, that's not enough for him. You know, he's going to go to what we call non-yeshiva subjects. Um, in addition to knowing all this uh, Gemara stuff, uh, Tanakh. You know, no, Tosh of Iksav. Eventually, what do you say, medieval Jewish philosophy, you know, Rambam, Kuzri, Chobzalovas, all that stuff, right? Eventually, Hasidus. In, in his case, now include Chabad, which is a whole library of its own, okay? And eventually, Kabbalah, I mean, Kisvei Arizal, the real thing. Um, it's a double Yudua that uh, Rav Kook was one of the big Kabbalim in Lithuania, which was not popular in Lithuania and all that. It's easy with Rebel Yashem. You know, in the Lesham show and all that, and then one or two others. Uh, why? Because he felt like it. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, there's nobody's. T- there's no much gich in the yeshiva going over saying you shouldn't be spending your time on this. You should spend your time on that. There's no much gich anywhere. He can do whatever he wants. Um, now wait a minute. He's growing up in these small environments with nobody uh, bossing him around, and not only going through shas and all that. And I'm talking about the. When I say rabbinic literature, I'm talking about halachic literature as well. Uh, so, you know, you, you knock off the Nerebi, you, know, you knock off the, the Rabbi Kivager, you know, that sort of thing. And, um, listen, it's in Russia, and his time, he's a Jewish intellectual, Haskalah. There's no question he read all the Haskalah literature. In fact, you can knock it off in a, in a day. Right? It's easy, the Hebrew. Newspaper, this is the golden age, if you want to call it that, of the Hebrew journalism, in which... Um, all these newspapers, the vast majority of whom we're not from, just a question of how much. You know, Hamaget, Hatsfira, how this, how that. 
uh, going on all the time, and he's very interested living in small towns. What's going on in the greater world? And so, what I'm trying to say is like this, organically, he picks up the Hebrew literature, he has a very good Ivrit, um, in my opinion, an overripe Hebrew, my, I don't like the style of Rokok, you know, uh, the Hebrew style is very, uh, super flowery and all that, but, you know, some do. Uh, he's going to do Chachmas Yisrael, in other words, uh, Jewish history, the, the, the books written by the Maskilm and the Wissenschaft of Judentums was coming out in the 1800s. It's mostly history, but also, uh, that's what it boils down to. History and discussions of Jewish science, uh, that kind of thing. To basically, anything in Hebrew, he's going to read and master, which already makes him a little different than the others. I've heard of people sitting and learning and, and mastering Shas, which is quite a, a deal. And if the guy also knows Mabli and Yerushalmi and all that sort of thing, then it's really a big deal. And if you throw in that Shulchan Aruch and everything goes on with Shulchan Aruch, uh, that's a big, big, big deal. There aren't too many people like that. But then, to be interested in addition to outside things, it's really most unusual. And eventually, because of where he lives, because of the time he's living in, he somehow, I don't know, he, he, he learns European languages. I know he knew German. I think he knew Russian. And uh, once you know a European language, you can read all the uh, secular stuff. I remember he read Shakespeare in the German, he said. Uh, so this is really unusual because most people of this type just spoke Yiddish as a, as a matter of policy. You see? So he's reading this much. And it's happening in the late 1800s, which is when science is exploding. It's what we call the fantasy at the end of the era. This is the name that's given to history for the pre-World War I period. When Europe and Europe's culture rocked and ruled the world, the imperialism, they conquered all the other countries of the world. And um, the new ideas that were coming out were uh, extraordinary. And, uh, you know, it really seemed like they were on the key to uh, nirvana, to the ultimate reality. The thing is, everything I just described, he did in an autodidact fashion. No, he's in Moscow. Rav Cook never went to school never had a formal education of any kind, which is interesting what I'm saying. What would he be if he had a college education? You know, it'd be like, wow. Uh, anything he picked up, he picked up like the Moschino did. He found the book on the French Revolution in Hebrew, he read it. He found a copy of Shakespeare in German, he read it. He found the book on trigonometry before he ever learned algebra, he read it. You know, this is how they used to do in those days. And for most people, it ends up not working. If you're a genius, you can overcome the fact that you're doing things out of order. He was a genius. So he ain't the typical rabbi in that regard, but he wasn't completely unique in this. Now, a person like this, therefore, is always going to be very great. Agreed? If you come in knowing uh, Shas and Poskim, in addition to that, you know the, 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 the Kabbalah, in addition to that, you know the Mechkar, you know, the Rambam, the Mordevuchim, and all that stuff. In addition to that, you know, uh, Jewish history, as was understood at that time, you're going to have very broad horizons. I'm going to think in big terms, okay? And this, of course, is probably the main reason why Ralph Cook was later like, uh, you know, like Rameir, Lo, lo uh, how's it go? Lo Yochlo Chaver, Lo of Daito. Because, uh, you know, he brings in so many cheshbonis into it. You know, he's a big post, he wrote Charles and Chubbs, we'll see later on. But you don't know where, where all this stuff is coming because he has so much in there. And how does he put it in order or not? He spent a year and a half, if I remember correctly, um, that's all in Volusion. So, he, and when he was there, he learned. They say he learned up a storm. Well, he learned up a storm before he came to Volusion. Yeah. In fact, he spent only a year there, even though he's very good friends with Dinitziv. 
he wrote a, a he wrote a biography for the Moskillic newspapers about the Nitziv because they solicited one, and the Nitziv said, "Do me a favor. I don't you know I don't have the time to write this, and I don't want to write about myself. So you write it." So I'm just saying, here's interesting: a, a guy in yeshiva who's tight with the Rashi. He's only there recently. He didn't spend a long time, but he's not a, not there long term. Uh, but he has sufficient confidence on the part of Rashiva that the Rashiva says, to use American expression, listen, you know, um, Haaretz or uh, Jerusalem Post wants a, a piece about me, you write it. You know what I'm saying? Um, that's very interesting to me. But um, he was clearly a genius, so at 19, he got married to the daughter of Panavisharov. Meaning he marries into the elite. Now I'm talking about the Panavisharov of that time. Which was the Adaris, you know, the uh, Rabinowitz Tumen, one of the biggest of the literature rabbis. And um, uh, he was 19 when he got married. And naturally, don't be surprised. So basically, to be exact, once he got married, he left Yeshiva and learned by the father in law. You know, in the house together with him. Uh, after all, your, your father in law is one of the big gadolim, so you can definitely talk and learning like that. Plus, being the father of a big rabbi, although the Panavish Rabbi had a very, very hard time. He wrote an autobiography. He's always complaining about the Balabatim and his Pinim, but whatever. Uh, he got him a Stella at a very young age. I was 21, 22, 23 when he became rabbi of a small town. And basically he said, I guess, listen, I'll put you on the robe, and little by little you'll, you'll climb to bigger positions. Now he married the rabbi's daughter. She died young. I remember that. They married like a year or two or three, something like that. She died. That's a tragedy. Uh, that must have been a bummer in his life. But then he married her cousin. Isn't that funny? He married her first cousin. And that's who he stayed married to the rest of his life. And that's wh- whom he had his children. You know, I think he had one boy and three girls, if I remember correctly. Um, but I repeat, he's for the Rabbonis. So you start in little towns. So I'm not even going to go through the names of the small towns. that It was in, you know, a bisk and this, that, and the other. Um, and the idea was like this. You sit in a small town, you had a rub over there, a small community, you sit and learn, maybe you publish or whatever, and uh, eventually you rise to bigger communities. And I can tell you that by the time he was 40, he had a field open to him. He could have become the governor of, or even in Vilna, or things like that, you know. He was that type, because with his vast knowledge, you understand what I'm talking about? Here's a guy, in addition to knowing shots. Knows all the kiss me morale. You know what I mean? Uh, the, 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 you know, there are all the stuff with the Rambam, these Igros. I mean, of course you're going to be a great speaker. You can, you have the Encyclopedia Britannica at your fingertips. You know what I'm saying? And you also can read the newspapers all the time, so you see what's considered good writing and not writing. That kind of helps you how to, see, he was a great, he was a good speaker in his time. Therefore, between being a gone on the one hand and a good speaker on the other, he could have had any uh, big position in Lithuania. But meanwhile, for about 20 years or so, hear what I said? 15 years, something like that, he was stuck being the rabbi in a number, one or two uh, small communities in Lithuania. <laughs> what do you do all day long during these years? This is the 1880s, 1890s. What do you do all day long? For a guy's 21, 22, 23, in his 20s, early 30s, what do you do? Um, first of all, he learned up a storm. He was a big masman, as we say. That's number one. Got to get that out of the way. Number two, once you're in Rabbanis, you enter the world of Allah Lamaisa, and eventually he'll be a big posseg. What I mean is he got shouts from all around the world. I want to be clear about this. If you read his shubas, which weren't published in his lifetime, but now are, 
he gets shouts from all over the world. And all kinds of practical uh, questions. Um, you know, writes about this in great detail. If you want a lumdish biography, if you want a, um, to be exposed to Ralph Cook's lumdish, you read Zevin and Isha Bishitos. Zevin, who was a, became like a chassid of his later and only, only a man at the end of his life, wrote a book called Isha Bishitos, which I spoke about when I talked about Zevin. And in my opinion, this is just my opinion, I think he wrote the book just to situate Ralph Cook with the Gedolim. That, that's what I think. Because there's a book about the Nitzib and Chaim Brisker and the Baruch Bear and uh, Chaim Meiser and Ralph Cook, you know, and the Ragachar or whatever. But anyway, so you're getting into writing Shalos and Shubas. You're getting into uh, learning all day long. Uh, he also is very interested, like I said, we're engaging with reality. Because even if you're in small towns in Latvia and Lithuania, if it's the 1880s, 1890s, X percentage of your Balabatim are not from. Mean, by that I mean they're not Shemitah Mitzvahs. Get it? What do you do when these guys don't keep Shabbos? What do you do if these guys won't open the store on Saturday? What do you do if they're not going to keep kosher? What do you do if they read something somewhere and they say, there is no God, I can prove it, you know, Karl Marx has proved it, or somebody else has. What does the rabbi do? That's, a, I think, a, a key element in the formation of his personality. And he is not the type of person to stand back, like I said before, and just stay in the basement all day long, which is one model. But rather, he keeps up with the newspapers, he ends up writing a lot of articles in newspapers, so he becomes a member of the uh, journalistic chattering classes of the 1880s, 1890s, in the newspaper world that flourished, Hebrew newspapers, in the Russian Jewish community, meaning in the, in the communities of the Russian Empire, in which all the battles of the day were fought out and debated. Then, I mean, it, uh, whether it's a question of Zionism, or was a question of, um, of uh, you know, the Russian government, there's a question of mitzvahs, a question of, uh, yeah, you name it, right? Uh, scandals, chinuch, uh, all kinds of issues. Excuse me. Um, all the kinds of uh, burning issues, whatever, at that time. And um, this is the great era of uh, Hebrew journalism when these items were, were in there. And let me say this. The main guy at that time was Zahad and this is a cultural Zionism era. And these people were, were trying to create, through literature, an alternative Judaism, meaning uh, an atheist, I'm serious about this, an atheist Judaism, which we eventually call cultural Zionism, which seeks to replace the traditional Jewish culture with a different culture. Okay? So these were hot-burning issues once upon a time. And there were X number of rabbis that engaged in these debates. And Rav Cook is one of the biggies. Okay? And... Um, all I can tell you is that uh, he became known um, through these essays. In my opinion, and all you ever get is my opinion, you know, Hanam's a much better writer. So Rav Kook had the content, and Hanam had the style. But it doesn't matter. This was the style. I happen to own, don't ask me why, a whole set of Apelles, which became the Haredi newspaper in the early 1900s. They have these very long, verbose, and flowery articles. That's, that's the style that people wrote in those days. Right? Now, Cook is from that generation. Uh, anyhow, this is what this 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 is what we're, we're we're dealing with. Okay, so this is not yeshivish exactly. He wants to engage with all that's significant out there, not the uh, uh, you know uh, wallflower. Now, here's the big thing. This is the period, in my opinion, not only mine, in which I would say secularism had its greatest uh, um, potency, right? Um, because religion was disproved. Between uh, Charles Darwin 
and, uh, you know, uh, Sigmund Freud, and uh, Fraser's Golden Bow, and Bible criticism. Let's put it this way. They proved that, that the religion doesn't exist. The Torah's wrong. They, you know, the God doesn't, you know, all that stuff. They really did. And they weren't stupid arguments. And you can't pretend it's not there. Well, you actually, you could. You know, the, what the Haredim did was just ignore it. But I'm just saying, if you want to deal with it, so um, the greatest messages of contemporary culture, of this very powerful, excuse me, Western culture, which is every day being machadish, new things in science, and uh, uh, not at the same frenzy pace we have today, but very much so in the late 1800s, early 1900s, technology's rolling out the idea, new ideas are rolling out the idea, you know, so much of the old is being discredited. They really are. So, um, let me put it this way. So, the average guy would say like this, I guess whatever I learned at home in Yeshiva is just a bunch of baloney. Plenty of people went off the dark that way. It makes 100% sense. In the case of Rav Cook, he is, member. he's in Kabbalah. He's a genuinely spiritual person. That's who he was. And that, I'm, by that I mean, listen closely, he feels the presence of God everywhere. That, that, in other words, God is not an idea. It's, it's an ever-present reality. He felt it, Beregish. You understand? So then you have a very interesting phenomenon. Now again, I'm just telling you the way I understand it. You have a very interesting phenomenon. I know deep inside that God is everywhere. I also know that all these arguments are out there prove, disproving religion, that God doesn't exist. And they're very smart arguments. So how does a person like this deal with that? He deals with it by asking himself the following question. Why is God making it now that these ideas should come out? Notice, what is God's reasoning in producing all these atheistical ideas out there? Right? Uh, I know the Torah is true. So, why is God introducing all this stuff into our era? What's his point? And um, if you follow this Mahalach, you end up, as I understand it, with his um, conclusion that... Um, God is is, create, is sending out modernity now to burn away the spurious and incorrect ideas and fables that have become attached to religion over the millennia. In other words, modernity, as European modernity, is burning, is burning away the baloney and allowing for true spiritual enlightenment. Um, it's a very interesting essentialist argument. You know, in the hands of the reform a hundred years earlier, the essentialist argument in which you say, Judaism has essential parts and non-essential parts was used to uh, to reform the religion, get rid of halacha, for example. Uh, not to have cook, obviously. But there's a lot of ideas that have crept into Judaism, which is just not true. And just because somebody said it, you know, people believe it. Uh, and the fact that there is non-emistic stuff attached into Judaism is bad. But now we're bringing in the modern critical perspective and it's demonstrating the falsity of it. Well, it's a very interesting way of, of operating. I'll just give an example. Again, I'm just telling, I'm not a bucky in this. At least I don't think I am. But I'll tell you um, my understanding of this. Right? Now, one way would be like this. Let's just pretend. Because I don't know this. I'm just uh, looking to this for an example. Let's say that you say, you know, um, uh, evolution is true. Well, just, stay with me for a second. Okay, the Darwinist proved evolution is true. Okay, 
So what that means is when it talks about six days of creation, each day is a zillion years. Let's just say, assume that that's true for a second. It's a zillion years. Okay, so the first day was a zillion years, second day was two zillion years, and so forth. I, it says a day. It's this expression. Now we understand what that means that. So wait a minute. If what I just said is true, then those who are predecessors, including big rabbis, who saw it when it said a day was a day, 24 hours, are now demonstrated to be wrong. So the idea that we had in the Torah that each day was 24 hours turns out being correct. And now God in his wisdom in the year 1890 or 1900 is showing us what the real shot in the Torah is and we're burning away the false understanding of it and placing it with a correct understanding. You, you, you get what I'm saying? It's that kind of approach. So that person that I just described isn't unfrom. He's convinced that this is the correct interpretation in light of modern discoveries in science. And Adrava, now we have a better idea what the Torah is talking about. Now that's a tiny, you know, percent of a percent. You have to apply this in a, in a broader fashion and educated ways. And, uh, you know, uh, depends on your perspective. You know what I mean? It depends on your perspective. You know, if you're a Maimonidean, you'll see all the, uh, you know, Ashkenazic ideas or Minhagam or baloney and, you know, after you burned out. Whatever the case is. Now, it worked for him. That's all I can say. And this approach, uh, this Mahalach, enables him to confidently engage with other modern people. Right? I don't know if it works for the average Bentorah. That's a separate question altogether. wouldn't recommend it. But it worked for him. Remember, he's not the average mentor. This guy was a going idea. And I think throughout his life, um, Rav Cook will look at the yeshiva world, and even most of the rabbis, in a kind of conflicted way. Yes, they do engage in holy work, but they think in, in terms of katnus. They don't think in, in broad and, and, and uh, wide terms like I'm thinking, which is now we have a better way of understanding the truths of the Torah, and we have to see things from a very broad ang- uh, angle, and don't even talk to me unless you went through whole shots, Bavi, Shalmi, and all the rest of it. And only then will you be able to see what's, what the, the right mahalk to go. Now, in the middle of all this stuff, and I could end here, you know, I could be describing an interesting life just with this alone. In the middle of all this stuff, when he's 30 years old, uh, Zionism, uh, become, political Zionism starts. Herzl wrote his book in 1895, and when Rav Cook, when uh, Cook was 30, and when he was 32, they had the first Zionist con- Congress. Okay? Political Zionism, which is different than cultural Zionism. So, for those of you who know what I'm talking about, the Zionist movement developed along two lines. One you can call Herzl, the unknown Ruf, uh, uh, Achana. Herzl, as I think you may know, was an assimilated Jew, knew nothing about Judaism, and all he said was like this I want to get a, a state of Israel. Once you get a state of Israel, the people inside will decide what kind of culture they have, whoever lives there. Uh, so, I have nothing to say about religion whatsoever. Uh, you want to be from, be from. You want to not be from, no, be from. I myself am not from. If you want to be from, go ahead. Uh, by contrast, the Chana'am and the cultural Zionists, they said, no, 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 no. Even more important than the state of Israel is that we should revolutionize Judaism and reconceive Judaism as a secular phenomenon. In other words, Judaism is important, but there's no God. <laughs> Let's be clear about that. There's no God. So everything that flows out of this has to be seen within those, you know, from those lenses. That's how the cultural Zionists operated. So, obviously, for the front people, the cultural Zionism was poison. But political Zionism doesn't have to be poison. What's wrong with the United State of Israel? You know, like that. Or am I wrong? Or there were other rabbis that said, no, no, you can't have a state of Israel of any sort whatsoever until the Mashiach comes. 
I mean, Russia people mostly were not like that. Now, um, that means that here's a person trying to figure out what's going on in the world. Who's a genius. He doesn't have, like I say, a formal education, but he has informal education, and he knows a felt. And he's trying to understand, from the Hashkafa perspective, the tumultuous times through which he's living, and why are more and more Jews going off to Derech, and um, what is God doing this for, and what is the message that we should be taking from here? Okay? Now, when he's 40 or 39 years old, um, he gets his famous invitation, because by this time, Rav Cook was a well-known rabbi since he paskened, and uh, he's a good speaker, and he was obviously known to be a big gone. And people said, you know, in a small community, he already started to get some serious job offers in Lithuania, you know, uh, for big communities. But I think it's well known that he took Yaffa in Israel, uh, in Palestine, which is still Turkish Palestine. So it was a community in Yaffa, was a small business, and they offered him the job and he took it, right? And for the rest of his career, he was a rabbi in Eretz Yisrael. Now, uh, when he came to Yafo in 1904, so he's 40 years old. That's the end of the first day of his life. First day of his life, he was a rabbi, an interesting rabbi. I wouldn't say he's world-known, but he was well-known in Lithuania and Russia, you know, that kind of thing. He was. Um, and, um, you yeah, know, and then Psaac from the, from the newspaper articles, you yeah, know, he was well-known, one of the cuck levels out there. But now he's going to go to Yafo and be in Palestine and then become world-famous. Right? Now, um, basically what happened was like this. I assume you know this, but I'll say it anyway. Long ago, 200 years ago, let's say 300 years ago, there were no Jews in Israel hardly. There were a few Sephardim and there was zero Ashkenazim. And then, late 1700s, Ashkenazim started coming there. First, the, uh, the uh, Hasidim and then the Mesagdim. The Hasidim were Hasidim and the Mesagdim called Prushim. Now, um, as the 1800s went on, uh, more and more of these, not many, but more and more came in. And this we call the Yeshiv Yashan, the old Yeshiv. To, to use language that you'll understand, it's Meisharm. Even though Meisharm didn't exist until 1870, but, you know, that kind of thing. Right? Yeshiv Yashan, uh, Which one to stay very from. Separate from that, I repeat, separate from that, was a stream that started coming mainly from 1881, 1881, and this would be the Zionists. Right, whatever they want to call them. And first, in the 1880s, 1890s, they start setting up the Moshe boat. This is what the Rothschild money. So, you know, Zichron Yaakov, Ben Yamina, Maskarit Batya, Yusud Amala, Ekron, I don't know, all these different places. Right? Now, um, uh, Gadara. Here you start to have questions uh, from or not from. The Yerushalayim people did not have much to do with these Moshevot. These people look like Meisharim, and those people look like Chalushim of one form or another. It's, it's not the same type. Uh, on the other hand, the Rabbanim in Yerushalayim wanted the people in the Moshevot to be from, but they didn't know exactly how to do it. Uh, they're happy that this uh, gifted and talented rabbi from Russia, who looks like he'll have more atzlocha with the types of Jews who live outside of Yerushalayim, is now coming to be the Rav. And his title was the Av Basin of Yaffa and the Moshevot. So in other words, from a formal perspective, he's the Rav, uh, formerly, of Zichron Yaakov, of Gedera, you know, all those type of uh, settlements, which were brand new Hebrew-speaking settlements. 
um, which are trying to build themselves in the towns and, and so forth. This is for a decade, right? And this is when he became world famous, although he wasn't really um, controversial at that point. That came after the First World War. And everybody, let's put it this way. It was a good shidduch. He loved it. The people in the town loved him. He made the Hasinim and the Mestagim get together, the Sfarnim and Ashkenazim, and uh, he was basically the perfect guy. And I'll repeat, even Meir Sharm liked it, because he basically figured like this, in order to get along and appeal to the Naya, to the new types, you need an unusual type rabbi. He's a big gong, he's a little bit unusual, but a little bit unusual is probably a good shitter for these guys, and he will be able, hopefully, to be mashpia on these settlements, to start being more from, keep Trumas and Mises, introduce from schools, you know, build mikvahs, all that kind of thing. Let's put it this way. It's only move up because uh, the observance was in, in bad shape and it can only get better. Whatever he does is an improvement. Now, Rav Cook, for his part, he came to Israel. And remember, he's got all these thoughts in his mind about modernity and about uh, Jews going off the derech. But as a Mekobel, if nothing else, um, and he's also a Yehuda Levi guy. He's a, he's a Kuzari person more than a Rambam person. That's his personality. He's a Kuzari person. He was... He was a Yehuda Levi type, uh, very romantic, uh, very mystical. If you don't know what I'm talking about, soon we're going to have um, Tishabov, and you're going to say, Tzion halo sarayach. Read it, read it, and see what Yehuda Levi is writing over there. And he's imagining Eretz Yisrael as, as a fairyland, as a Disneyland, as a, as a Mary Poppins, you know? It's saturated with holiness. Can't you see it in front of you? It's visible, it's palpable. Um, that's who he was. Now, Yehuda Levi never got to Israel. So he did this all from his imagination. At the end of his life, he was making Aliyah, dying on the way. But in his mind, it was a magical, get it? And the Kedusha, as I said before, you can, you can actually see, right? Not everybody's built that way, <laughs> right? Not everybody's built that way. <laughs> but uh, Rav Cook was, and uh, it's very interesting, there was a small, tiny yeshiva in Yafa, and I remember... He, uh, now being the Rav there, so he gave some shirim there. He gave a shirim Gemara, and he gave a shirim Kuzari, right? Because the Kuzari from Yehuda Levi is the same thing. What does the Kuzari keep telling the king? Oh, it's this role, super fantastic, and it's not like any other country, and Davir Da'ara, and, you know, um, like I said before, the, 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 <laughs> the Kedusha is shooting out like the Corona in America, and it's, 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 uh, it's, it's breathable, you understand? And, uh, What's Taka the point of the Kuzri? The Gaisha king keeps telling the rabbi, if that's so, then why don't you make Aliyah? <laughs> and the, the rabbi keeps saying, you know, you got me on there. And by the end of the Kuzri, by the end of the Kuzri, the rabbi said, you know, I came to persuade you, but you persuaded me. I, I'm making Aliyah. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure if Cook felt this in his own personal life, that, uh, you know, I'm going to where I'm needed. You know? Um, and, 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 and the reason I'm mentioning all this is that now that he comes there, Anything connected with building up Eretz Yisrael, you go out there and you see these guys living among the Arabs, you see them working on the farms, you do all the rest of it. You don't, I mean, he's totally aware that they're not from the ones who aren't and all that. He's, he's, you know, the opposite of stupid. But at the same time, it cannot be that in this modern era, Eretz Yisrael is starting to come alive again. And little by little, more Jews are coming there. And this is just a coincidence. You see? It's got to be part of God's plan. Because I tell you again, to him, God is, a, is an ever-present, uh, you know, a reality. Uh, he's the type of person without question that if he burps, he'll say, why does that make me burp? Which is what all of us should be that way, right? 
So if he's coming to Israel and see these guys working their heads off in the malaria and all the rest of it, so basically he comes to see them as big tzaddikim. Obviously not in the, con- in, in the conventional sense, but they're building up Israel. That in itself is unbelievable, Mila, even though I would also want him to keep Shabbos, you know? Now, uh, this, here was his big insight, I'm, in my opinion. His big insight was the Chilonim in Israel, then and later, are not like the American Jews or the German Jews. It's a different thing. The Chil- then maybe maybe uh, you can apply it anywhere. The Chilonim in Israel, even though they talk like Abikorsis, they're not really Abikorsim, with the rarest of exceptions. Maybe not even then. I mean, he used to uh, argue in, in print against uh, Ben Yehuda, you know, who said the Jews aren't interested in their past. He said, no, the Jews are interested in their past. Um, you just need to be approached in the right way. Now, at that time, in 1904, there's a radical Chiddush. Today, 100 years later, we call it Kirov 101. <laughs> so, uh, that's what I'm trying to say. When we're doing a podcast from Cook from a perspective of 100 years, time gives you a certain perspective that you wouldn't have had at that time. Today, it's, it's 101. Instead of saying, oh, they're off the derrick, they're totally gone, a real Kirov person, depending who you are, right? whether you're a Litvish Kirov guy or a Lubavitcher, a Shlich or somewhere else, you simply say like this, these people can be worked on. And there's no such thing as a really bad Jew, or with the rarest of, rarest of exceptions. They simply screwed up. And it's, you have to find the key, that's all. And um, this became who he was. And the funny thing is like this, it worked. It worked so much today, I think you know what I'm talking about, especially those of you living in Israel. There's a ton of people out there who are chilonim. I'm not even talking about the Masorati, I'm talking about the chilonim. Really? If they were approached in the right way, they would become religious, observant. Trouble is, you know, they, they never encountered the right guy in the right place. You see? Even though it's Israel, and, um, you know, uh, there's such a strong secular culture, and the firm are such a turnoff, as we all know. Alpha became. We see it all the time. Now, I, I repeat, not everybody, there's exceptions, but much more widely than people would have thought. So the average person says like this, eh, you know, they're too far gone. And it certainly seems that way. But the other way to say it is like this, they're not really too far gone, they're just lazy on your part. If you go it in the right way, like a professional, professional, whatever his or her field is, I try this approach. If this doesn't work, I try a different approach. I've been trained in many approaches. I try to figure out the one that works. I think this was his big insight now, which the Yeshua Yashan didn't see. Like they didn't see. Um, okay, let me fix this uh, tape here for a second. Okay. I had to switch the tape here. Um, or whatever they call it, I know. Uh, so what was I saying? The This is when he was already in, in um, Israel. Now, what's really interesting is, once he was in Yafa, he started really getting shots from all over the world. He had a repu- I guess he had a reputation. I don't know exactly how. That's his big gong. And of course, he had to throw himself totally into the whole separate world of mitzvahs of Tluis Baris, which most of us are not into, let's face it. You know, Trumas and Meisters and Shemitah and Yobel and all, 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 all sorts of things. So he's a term- now, he was a, the type of gong he could handle that. But, I mean, that's a whole shifting of... You don't get those kind of questions in, in, in Russia, you know what I mean? And uh, it was really interesting 
is, uh, if you read, by the way, his Igros, which are very interesting. Uh, the other writings are not interesting, but the Igros are very interesting. He gets letters all over the world from all types of people from and not from. You no, know, he got to be seen as a major uh, religious figure, spiritual figure. And he got involved with trying to get all the settlements, the Moshebub, in the classic old-fashioned sense of, like in the old country, to move things forward an inch here and an inch there. So you go from, from community to community, try to spend Shabbos there, give them a speech, try to get, upgrade the cultures a little bit, upgrade the Trumas and Maestras, upgrade the, the, the mikvah, you know, that way. And remember, this is his bailiwick. His official position was, he is the of base and the Rav of Yafo, that's one thing. In addition to the other thing, the, the, the Moshevab, I was saying before that he's like the Kuzari, so, uh, you know, he could totally, uh, let's put it this way, see what he's doing as, uh, you know, blowing Kedusha, I guess, or something like that, into all these new areas. Now, in this capacity, in these 10 years, between 1904 and 1914, he starts to publish these books. Uh, remember, you wrote a thing about the Esrog, I have it somewhere. Or they should buy Israeli Esrogram. It makes a whole lucky case. His throne that I'm referring to now are basically uh, Lundus. Those they're halachic arguments they can trust the, the, the trees of Eretz Yisrael as opposed to the Greeks on Corfu, and uh, that they're not Morkov. And, uh, you know, he set up a system, and for now, everybody should buy Israeli Esrogim. This is really the for where it comes. As I grew up, you get the Esrogim fall from Israel. Uh, I'm not talking about those you get from Chutzlart. The idea you get from Israel and what a big schus it is and all that. And it's a, what's it called? Priates Hutter or something like that. And uh, he hoped that this will help the economy. And, you know, no, there's nothing wrong with it. I repeat, he's making halachic arguments having a lot to do with Esrog Morkov stuff, those sugis, uh, which a lot of Hornish business, frankly, you know, because the classic stuff or the Hornish, uh, what do you call it? Shubas. Um, and then, of course, the big thing was the Shemitah. Because not long after he came to Israel, uh, it was Shemitah year, and then there was another one just before the First World War. And, he, and this is maybe one of the most controversial things he did. Maybe yes, maybe no. Because, of course, Rav Cook basically uh, made permanent the Hedger Mechira. And he did so. Now, let me just give an exact definition in very short terms. You had so and so many Moshe vote at, at that time, Yishavim. Um, of Jews. Um, they were all living on land owned by Rothschild. Baron Edmund Rothschild had been persuaded by Shmuel Mulliver to invest seriously in Palestine. I think I discussed that when I did Shmuel Mulliver. And he had unlimited funds. And even though he was a kook and he was a micromanager, he wanted to do things his way, the bottom line is he put up the bucks and he bought the land and he provided the farmers with implements and all this kind of stuff. He wanted them to do it his way, but nevertheless, he made it possible. And uh, therefore, the mass majority of the Moshe Bud were at that time owned by Rothschild. And when it comes to Shemitah, so the question is, can you persuade uh, Rothschild you know, to bankroll everybody should keep Shemitah or not? Well, no, I'm wrong. Because it turns out a lot of these places we're not from. Therefore, whatever, they want, they want to work on the seventh year. They want to do it. Um, sometimes Rothschild 
himself says, I don't want to pay for nothing. If they're allowed to work, then why can't they, then they should work? A very delicate uh, situation. A good friend of mine, Sammy Finkel in Israel, wrote a book, which I, I recommended in the past, about Masqueret Batya, which was one of these Moshe Bob, where in the first time it came around in the 1880s, when Mitzvah Bochanan gave him the Hatter to use the uh, Hatter Mechira, they didn't want to use it, they were from. And they went by the Rabbanim in the Yeshiva Yashan, who said, you should, you should rest in the seventh year. And Rothschild got totally angry, appeared, and he said, I'm not going to pay you, I'm not going to support you. And they starved, and some of them died. Uh, I don't remember what happened the second time, but by this time it's like the third Shemitah. And Rav Cook said, the situation is such, and you have to look bidyevid. He said it's a bidyevid, but we have to um, uh, make a way to allow certain avodas to be done, certain lochas to be done during the Shemitah year. Basically, his approach is, you figure out the Shemitah, Bisman says Durabonan, and I'm letting you do Malachas Durabonan, not Malachas Duraisa. That's what it boiled down to. Uh, I remember he wrote a book, Shabbos Arts, to defend his position, and basically saying from now on this will be. This is the Hector Mechir we always hear about. It's all based on Rav Cook. And uh, there were those who said, obviously, at that time, so this is going too far, and you're just doing post facto heterim uh, and all the rest of it. He wrote a book to defend himself, and again, it's a book of Lambdas called Shabbos Arts. Many, many years ago, I mean, a long time ago, I read through it, most of it once, but it was too dense at that time. After like halfway through, I gave up because I, you know, I wasn't holding in the, you know, I found it too hard to follow. Uh, sometime later, and you will too, most of you, sometime later, I found that Rav Zevin, who's always my hero, has a masterful, brilliant essay in Laura Locha on Shemitah. And it's wonderful. Everybody should read this, especially whenever Shemitah comes around. This is a must. And uh, if you read his essay on the Shemitah, he describes the whole Rav Cook thing in simple language. No, it was in understandable language. But, you know, the arguments that's the Rabbanan and whether you allow things that are derived the Rabbanan, can you lose Arabs to do this thing or that thing, and all the nitty-gritty. I want to say this, though. Uh, but Rav Cook said, because he knew what he was talking about, this is a bit the evidence. Those who really keep Shemitah should be applauded for doing so. This is not a way to professional them. And he wrote to Rothschild and the officials. He had a whole correspondence with them, which you can look up if you're interested, in which don't take revenge on my scared bot and the other guys who want to do the Shemitah. Don't consider them lazy. Otherwise, I pulled my head there. I'm not doing this to make life easier for Rothschild. I'm doing it to make life easier for the, for the people. We're not going to keep it anyway. You understand? That type. But the ones who want to keep it are, are doing the, the preferred. In other words, I too hold that if I was a farmer, I, would keep, I wouldn't do anything with Shemitah. You understand? But I'm not applying that standard to me because that's, that's the position of a Rav. Me, myself, and I can have whatever I want. But I have to him for the community out there. And in this situation, this is the way it can be. Now, I don't know if they really kept his guidelines or not. If you ask me a question some of these secular places, did they really only keep the Molochus Rabbanon I strongly doubt it, but uh, nevertheless, this was this, this was his his um, halach, and all I can tell you is, uh, it got him a lot of. Uh, let's put it this way: this contributed to his myth. When I say myth, I don't mean myth in the simple way of made up stuff, but image, image. You think that the chilonim and the others they all like Rav Cook, and not for bad reasons, but he is he's trying to help us. You understand? Know in his way. He's trying to, to, to help. You see? Now, uh, 
the first time I think it wasn't so controversial. The second time, I remember it was 1913 or something like that. By that time, the Ridvas had moved to Israel. Uh, the Slutskarov was one of the big gedolim in Russia. Now, Kuk was also a big gedolim. And the risk and the, this Ridvas launched a whole campaign against them, meaning Apidin. Um, and it got real personal and all the rest of it. And he said, you know, it's a chucha klula. And by the way, you totally hear the argument against it. You're selling the whole Israel to an Arab? Give me a break. You know, it's not real. It's too much chucha klula. But of Cook has a whole thing about the harama and when harama is allowed to and not harama. And um, because harama is a din of the Gemara. You know, everybody uses it for Bechoris, like for example. And uh, right, that's in the Mishnah. And uh, anyway, they had back and forth and all this kind of stuff. And neither one backed off. But I'll say it again. He did, um, let's put it this way, uh, have an image of somebody who's a good guy because he's trying to, you know, he's trying to matter what, what can be mattered. Let's put it that way. And this is why I say the mythical approach. And therefore, he's a very popular figure. Among the, he should be even among the non from. And his approach was always to try to win a non for by uh, positive relations. But this is a very tricky business. I don't like all the um, fluff and sugar. I think what Rev Cook understood was you ain't getting nowhere with anybody who's not from unless you give him a basic respect. You got to approach. That's why he always said, Oh, you guys are wonderful and you're in Chalutim. You go to somebody with criticism, disrespect, you lost them. You got to show them respect. On the other hand, it's, you know, like a Navartica. It's not so simple. If my goal is to convert you, I'm not really showing you respect. Take a Labavitcher or a Kira professional who moves to a neighborhood and is very nice to everybody. Not real. I mean, they're nice, but I'm just saying, they don't really respect you. They're just tactically using that to get you to switch. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? Really respect means, you're not showing Shabbos. I, I, I hear that. I totally respect, I live my life, you live right, I respect what you do, you respect, you know, the American style, you know, I'm from, you're not from, that's okay, uh, a from person can't say that, you see, and so, as I said before, the whole approach of the Kira person is like the Jesuits, you pretend one way because you, you have a goal, you understand, but the goal is not really to respect where you're holding, so, it's hard to say, you know, Cook genuinely respected the others, I mean, he did, but, you know, with the goal of moving them. Okay, I just want to be clear about that. But apparently they didn't mind it. They, 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 they understood that. You know what I'm saying? And uh, um, this became really part of who he is. And uh, the best example of this, there's a lot to talk about. I can't do that. It's already too long as it is. The best example is uh, what's called Masa Moshevot. A couple of years ago, I was in Israel last time. I led a, a group to Israel with, with my friend Rabbi Mar from Shomri here, and uh, we put together a nice itinerary. It's hard to get trips to Israel nowadays. Everybody's been there. Nobody wants to go. If I want to go to Prague, it's easy to get the group together. If you want to go to Israel, even though I have a fantastic itinerary, it's hard to get people to go. We live in strange times. Last time we went, so one of the things I wanted to do for a number of years, and we did it, was called Masaha Moshevot. Masa from the word uh, Matas Masay, a travel. Masaha Moshevot. And that is in 1913, Rav Cook and the Yeshua Yashem, Rechaim and Bintin Yadler and others, they said like this, all of whom were in the same mind, let's go on a trip to visit all the Moshevot that were out there at that time, scattered throughout Palestine, and on a Chizik uh, mission, you understand, on a Chizik mission, go from town to town, community to community, 
and the fact that a whole bunch of Rabbanim are going to show be a, it'll be a big job, as we say today, be impressive occasion, and try to have uh, a kesher with the different um, uh, communities, some from, some not mostly not from, and try to improve the Yiddishkeit. It's a very Rabbanist type approach, right? Which I say, let's let's move everything everywhere a few yards ahead as much as we can. Maybe we can fix up the, the kashras here in some degree. Maybe we can fix up the base Knesset thing in the other degree. Maybe we can fix up the cemetery thing to make it more halachic in this case. Maybe we can fix up Trumasimaisus in this case. You know, this is this was the idea. And as I say, all the people agree with this. And therefore, of Cook and Zonnefeld and the others, they all went on this journey, which they did by wagon. It was a slow business. And they visited X number of places. And later on, I think Pinsin Yadler wrote it up. It's called Sefer Masa Moshevot. It's very, very interesting. And what they do is the Rav Cook people, in whatever they call today in Israel, they can put together a, um, a tour in which you revisit all these places and somebody tells you what happened in all those places. Now, I'll tell you the truth. It was actually a disappointment to me because I thought they were going to have some kind of specialist in each place. And they just hired a guy who showed around. I could have done that myself. In fact, I ended up doing a lot of it just myself. Because I know the stories like you know the stories. Yeah? Not research. But in the only end, I don't know the order in which to go. But what's real, and I recommend if you're interested in this at all, it's a very fascinating subject to look up. If those of you can read Hebrew, just Google Masa Hamoshavot. You know, you'll find the literature and stuff over there. And they went to uh, Palestine just before the First World War. And in each place, they had a different reception. Most of the places was positive reception. And uh, I'll give you one example. When they went to Zichron, they went to Zichron, they went to the synagogue, they didn't have the Bim and Be'emsa. Now, you don't have to, but it's proper. And uh, and and the whole idea of not having the Bibi Bamsa was like a proto-reform move, even though, whatever. And so they basically said, we're not going to dive in here until you move the Bibi Bamsa, or something like that. I remember the story somewhat. And they did. So I know it's not at the end of the world, but I'm just trying to tell you that's the end of moving everything an inch forward. Uh, they went to another town, they worked on the Trumas and Mises. Um They went to some places... And they were rejected. They said, get the heck out of here. We don't have nothing to do with you. We're not interested in Frankite at all. And uh, Rav Cook famously said, I guess, no, I didn't come to Mashpe on you. I came to be Mushpa from you. Yeah, it's a famous line, which is a, a, a great line. Uh, I don't know if he meant it or not, but, you know, I respect you and all the rest of them. And he put on their hat. There's all these Maisalach like that. Um, now, whatever the specific historical details are, and it's really a subject... That could be a podcast on its own, so I don't have any time to go into details. But take a look at it. It's very interesting. Uh, and they went all over uh, Palestine at that time, uh, all the way up north. And, uh, you know, like I say, they had whatever Rosham they had. Some places more, some places left, less. Well, I'm going to tell you something. This trip I took, one day was the Masa Moshevah, but we went to other places also. One of the places we went to, listen to this, one of the places we went to was Merchavia, which is a secular kibbutz, Golden Mayor's from there, but before the First World War, it was called something else. And um, whoever was fixing the tour for me, they arranged this old guide. This is a totally chilini place, you know what I'm saying? Super chilini. And this older guy, who's like a blowhard, came to address the group, and it's always interesting to meet these people, and we'll give a history of the kibbutz, Turned out he didn't give no history of kibbutz, he just talked. Um, but that's okay, you know, it's in Israel, it's good. If you're American tourist, it's good. 
and you saw part of Israel usually you don't see in terms of the history. When I go in the, when I lead the tour, it's all about history, as you know. And the guy, who's not educated anything like this, but he's a guy who's in his 80s. And uh, he doesn't remember of Cook, but he grew up hearing these stories. And he said, oh, you know, long ago, they came here, a bunch of rabbis, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Rabbi Zonnefeld said everything here is trafe, and Rav Cook said, you know, the word tzaddikim, words to that effect. And that shows you what a great man Rav Cook was. Now, that's what you call folk memory. Whatever actually happened is a separate story. But you see, in the memory, you say, oh, Rav Cook was a tzaddik. Why was he a tzaddik? Because he justified us. He admired us. <laughs> you see? And uh, that is very interesting in terms of approach that you win the sympathy of the people by by giving them, like you say, a, it's, a, it's a trust. You understand? I, I validate you. I always thought it's funny. Uh, it reminds me. Um, now, so, my point is like this the Chilonim in Israel is not like Reformed Jews in America. The Chilonim in Israel came as part of Israeli culture, part of broad Israeli culture, to look at Rav Cook affectionately especially after he's gone, even if they didn't convert exactly. And this laid the groundwork for the most important reality in Israel today from a religious point of view, which is the Chilonim was still going to go along with the halacha, which is a surprising fact in, in the year 2020. I'm talking about at the level of the Rabbanud and the uh, marriage and divorce and all that. Now, um, if you go online, this reminds me of a story, if you go online, you can hear a uh, lecture from uh, Rabbi Salvechik. You know, they have sometimes their, uh, I heard a few of them, uh, recorded. And I think somebody asked him about Rav Cook. You can just Google this. And what he said, in effect, was the following. That, and now, Rabbi Salvechik was one time in Israel. He did a tryout to be chief rabbi in Tel Aviv, and he lost in the 30s. Uh, but he was there for a short time. And he said he went, he, if I'm going by memory now, um, uh, but he, he said, where can you eat? And they said, Nisnes Kibbutz, or something like that. Moshav, you can eat, even though it wasn't religious. Really? They have kashas there? Yeah, why? Rav Cook came there. This is a story Rav Salvation told over. He said, Rav Cook came there. He said, I'm coming. They said, don't come. I'm coming for Shabbos anyway. We don't keep Shabbos. I'm coming for Shabbos anyway. And he came, and um, I'm trying to remember the story. He got off the cab, and he had a, 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 you know, a suitcase with him. And he said... Uh, you know, I just want to be here for Shabbos and observe you. I, I admire you guys and all the rest of it. They said, we don't want you here. If you want to be here, we're not going to bother you, but don't get in our way. He said, I'm not getting in your way. Would somebody like to help me? Uh, and kosher food, forget it. So he brought basically, you know, a couple of small challah rolls. This will be his breakfast, lunch, and supper for Shabbos. It's three meals. And a little bit of wine. You know you know what I mean? He had all in the suitcase. Um, they're not helping him at all. And he said, somebody want to help me. Make a minion for Mincha No, we're against minions. Okay, no problem. And uh, when does everybody eat? We're eating tonight at this and this time. And the Chedorocho, it's all trafe, it's all secular. We're going to have, you know, the movies on, all the rest of it. He said, no problem. And he sat and ate his own thing. And this is how he went the whole Shabbos. Down by himself, ate by himself. You know, I think maybe for La Malka, he, he said a, a word or two. Something like that. And he didn't complain a bit. You understand? although he must have been unhappy that nobody would accommodate him in the slightest. But by the time he left, they already felt bad about it, and they said, you come next year, we'll make a kosher kitchen. Right? You come next year, we'll make a kosher kitchen. And the point is, without saying anything, he knew how to hit the right button.
Uh, that's the story of salvation told over. Life of Kiruv uh, is a matter of hitting the right button. And, and the way you do it in America is not identical to the way you do it in Israel. I'm reminded, now I'm saying this, I read once, Rabbi Gorin, he was the chief rabbi, uh, rabbi of the Israeli army back in the early 50s. That's when they were starting the rabbi, and uh, you have to, all, all the, uh, all the food has to be kosher, you know that. That's the famous thing when Ben-Gurion and him set up the, the, the Rabbanut, they say, everybody's going to keep kosher. Even though the Chilonim, the Mapam said it's not fair, it's fair to the It's a famous line from Ben-Gurion. It's not against your religion to eat a kosher sandwich. It's against this guy's religion to eat a trape sandwich. You can't expect that that guy to eat a trape sandwich. You can't do it. It's not against your religion to eat a kosher sandwich. Uh, but that doesn't mean the whole army cooperated. And as I recall this story... He went to uh, Arik Sharon, Ariel Sharon, who was a captain at that time, starting that new commando unit, you know, 101. And Sharon said, he goes, we ain't got no kids. There's not a single guy here in the paratroop thing that's, a, that's from. Not one. So it doesn't make any sense. It's ridiculous to have a kosher when everybody, without exception, is, uh, is trafe. And the story is about going to like this. I'm joining your unit. They say, you don't know any parachute. I'll go to parachute school. And I'll join the unit. And he went to the parachute course, then he jumped and broke his leg. Because <laughs> he never went before. The Goran I'm talking about. Broke his leg. And Ariel Sharon came to visit my hospital and he said, you got guts. And he said, because you did that, I'll, I'll put a kosher kitchen. He said, I agreed to a kosher kitchen. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a, you know, you have to learn the right button to press. Life presents itself with the right button or not the right button. You see? I remember, again, it comes to mind... Uh, what's his name? Uh, Ariel Levin, the famous Sadik. When he was 70 years old, I think it was, or 80 years old, his former Irgun guys that he helped wanted to make like a party. Try to remember. And some were really, really not from. And they wanted to get him a prize or a gift or something like that. And he told one of the guys, You know me, I don't want any gifts at all. The rest of it. If you want to give me a gift, if you want to, now I'm not telling you. Totally up to you. If you want to give me a gift, stop smoking on Shabbos. Don't smoke on Shabbos. But you don't have to. I like you anyway. And the guy said, I wouldn't do it for anybody, but for you, I'll do it. In other words, he, he waited for the moment to press that button. That guy, so the guy never smoked again on Shabbos, but only because to make Gary Lewin feel good. So this is what you call a cook approach. You, see? you have to wait many, many years until the right moment comes and you can move the goalpost. That's just an interesting mahalk. Again, once I'm on this road, I recall there was a rabbi in Germany, in uh, Mannheim, I think it was. Excuse me. There was a rabbi for years and years. There was a rabbi for years and years, a very modern communion, and he didn't have a mechitza. I'm, I, I'm going by, I saw this in German once, long ago. And he was a very popular rabbi, and after he was there 40 years, when they had the 40th uh uh, you know, uh, dinner. That's a long time. So, and he was very popular. He married everybody, buried everybody, you know, by Mr. He's very well beloved. They said, we want to get you something 40 this year. He said, if you want to get me something, get me mechitza. Doesn't have to be so high, get me mechitza. And he did it just to make him feel good. So again, in other words, it's, it's, a, it's an approach, Yiddishkeit, which is you wait, you wait, wait, and then when the moment is there, you pounce, and you move the goalpost a few a few yards. That's uh that to me is is the rough cook approach. 
Now, the regular Rabbanim didn't, uh, couldn't do this. And I think uh, this gave him uh, pretensions. I mean, he, he, there's no question he had to see himself, I'm different, I'm gifted in the way the others are. I can reach these now from the others camp. Now, this is what I went for the 10 years. Very interesting period of his life. I'm not doing justice to it. I'm just trying to give you the short version. Um, then, of course, came World War I. And the case of Rav Cook, very famous, he left Palestine just before World War I. He was on his way to a Goethe convention. Uh, uh, they were going to have a Goethe convention in Berlin, I think. Uh, then the war broke out, and then he went to Switzerland for a year or so in a small town because uh, he had no money. And this uh, Swiss Jewish businessman said, live by me and I'll take care of you in St. Gallen, a small place. And then he was offered, he took the job to be a rub of the from show in London, you know, the Eastern European show where Abramsky was later on. And he said, I'll be here during the war. After the war, I'm going back to Israel. And so he was in London for 1916, 17, 18, about three years, which is interesting during the middle of the war. And again, I'm sure he saw this because God is always there with him uh, as, as divinely inspired. The world's going crazy, as you know. Um, I mean, we're talking about World War I, where millions killed millions and millions and millions, all quiet in the Western Front, charged in the trenches, and there was a flu epidemic. There was the, the massive death. Now, if you're a cook, in my mind, there's no question you say, yes, listen, the Jewish people going through a crisis of modernity. Then people start moving to Eretz Yisrael. Uh, and then there's a world war. Is it Gogamogu? I think it is a Gogamogu. They'll be followed by some kind of messianic business. And indeed, you know, this is the biblical approach. Remember that passing in Zechariah? Uh, I'll overturn whole kingdoms. That was World War I. The, the Habsburgs went out of business, the Romanovs went out of business, the Hohenzollerns went out of business, all these countries, the kings lost their throne. All the great nations will be destroyed. You know, everybody, a whole, whole nations will wipe each other out, will wipe each other out, and then I'll bring through Babel and be the Mashiach, you know. So, there's no question in my mind, you know, that he saw himself in a Gogamogu situation. And to prove it, the British made the Balfour Declaration. <laughs> you understand? Know in the middle of the war, 1917. Of Cook was three years in uh, London. If you read Isidore Epstein, he's one of my mm, favorite nice authors. He's been in Jews College. Very nice person. He did the Sancino Talmud. I'm a fun guy. And he was a, a teenager or something like that, or, or a young man, when he was there, it was three years, and he fell in love with Ralph Cook. He's a British guy. He says, amazing, unbelievable. I went to hear him all the time. I have chocolate with him as much as I could. Now, Ralph Cook was a, a raw of raw. He comes to Eastern Europe, uh, to Eastern European community. It's all Yiddish speaking. So, you know, he does all the things that an East European rabbi would do in, in London, but he's not just another rabbi in London. <laughs> he's a world famous person, happens to be here just for the war. And uh, I remember the big. Cr so, first of all, just being in England must have been interesting. Uh, second of all, you know, because he'd never been in Western uh, communities, you know. Second of all, uh, he dealt right away with a big, very interesting, controversial issue. Should I go into this? Uh, well, all right, I will just for a minute. Draft Dodgers, you know. All right, here we go. England never had draft conscription. That's against the English tradition. 
So all during the 1800s and early 1900s, all the countries in Europe had a draft. This is what they were preparing for the world wars. Germany, Austria, Russia, France, Belgium, every country had a draft. It's against the English tradition, so they didn't have conscription. So if you don't want to go, you don't go. Then World War I broke out. England had a very tiny army, very excellent army, but they got worn down very quickly in all the heavy battles. And so from 300,000, they were down to nothing. So then England, uh, raised by volunteers, Lord Kitchener's famous sign, we need a million volunteers. So a million people signed up volunteers. But then they got killed out in the, in the First World War because the generals didn't know what they are doing in the trenches. It was pretty bad. So eventually they came to the conscription. You understand? It came to a point that everybody gets drafted. This is like the late 1916, something like that. It got rough. And now there were a whole bunch of Jews who had emigrated from Russia to England. Let's say you're 20 years old and you moved in 1914, for example. Got the heck out of Russia. Well, what did you really Russia for? You don't get drafted in the Tsar's army. I don't blame you. Now you come to England. You're not going to England to fight in the British army. You're going to get killed. You don't feel the British patriotism. You just landed here very uh, a short time ago. And so it was a busyness. All the English are going off to war and coming back killed and wounded. And these guys, Leipzig, are getting tagged. They're running around London having a good time, quote-unquote, because they're not yet British citizens. So they're not subject to the draft. They're Russian citizens, but they're not in Russia. So this caused a lot of anti-Semitism. To make a long story short, there was a move either to send them back to Russia, in which case they would have been shot by the Tsar, or draft them in the British Army willy-nilly. And Ruff Cook got into this. He made this one of his causes. I basically gave everybody a smicha. Just like that. Because uh, then you're a clergyman, you don't get in the army. And the British called him in. He said, you're, ma- you're making a joke out of smicha. He said, I don't care. You know, these guys should not be in the army. And the Bantori tried to explain them. It's funny, I mean, uh, if you go, he wrote memoranda to the British government, to the war ministry, saying, Bantori is a special madriga. You know, also in the Bible, the king of Yehuda was punished, the Chazal say, because he made an angaria with Talmud Chacham. I mean, how does he expect an English official to look at this Agatha stuff? But that's what he did. And he got away with it. It's really interesting. But more important was the Balfour Declaration, because in 1917 came the big push that England should declare that uh, Palestine after world will become a Medina Israel. And the British Jews uh, were not sure which way to go to Zionists were a small minority. The rich English Jews, for the most part, said, oh, we're English, we're not Jewish. You know what I mean? Not nationality. Judaism just a religion, it's not a nationality. And they pushed very hard against the Balfour Declaration. Uh, and they and they even said, it's against the Jewish religion. Ruff Cook wrote a very famous public letter that was read in all the shows, written in Yiddish, which says these Jews are, because they wrote a letter to the London Times, the rich Jews, and they said, we're telling you where the leading English shoots, and we're telling you uh, Zionism and a Jewish state is against the Jewish religion. And he wrote a whole thing called Begida. You guys are um, traitors to the Jewish people, in Yiddish, and you're hocking up, you're chopping up the Jewish identity with knives, and we won't permit this. Because nationalism is part of Judaism. Right? Even Satmar agrees to that. They may not agree to the Zionist version, but nationalism is a part of Judaism. That the Jews are not simply a religious group. We have a national aspirations as well. And you're uh, raping Judaism. There's a famous scene in Parliament where one of these guys, Edwin Montague, who caused a lot of trouble for the Jews later on. He was Jewish. His father was from, but his father wanted to disown him because he wanted to marry Shikshan. It's a whole long story. Um, listen to my, uh, my, uh, 
YouTube channel. I talk about it. Anyway, um, in Parliament, he said, the Jewish religion is against uh, having a state. And a guy, a member of the British uh, Parliament, said, wait a minute, Rabbi Cook says it's part of Jewish religion. And you say it's not part of Jewish religion. Who's a bigger expert in Judaism? And that, that rabbi looks at me like he's a bigger expert in Judaism. And make a long story short, he played an interesting role in helping the British government issue a Balfour Declaration. He helped Chaim Weizmann and these other guys. And uh, uh, they appreciated it. And those, uh, even though they held he's a rabbi in a bottle, they saw he's not. And uh, it's very interesting that he wrote a public letter and he issued a speech afterwards in which he basically said the following. The whole world has not paid the Jews back for what we, we've given the world, the Bible, the ethics, the Musa, and all the rest of the Derecherts. And they paid us back with Inquisition, Crusades, and persecutions. Um, they owe us. And this war is such a terrible war that uh, something good's got to come out of it, and this would, this would justify the war. You know what I'm saying? And when the, when the Balfour Declaration was issued, he gave a speech in which he said, I'm not thanking the British people, I'm congratulating them. You get what I'm saying? In other words, I'm congratulating you guys, the Goyim, on having this chus to give Eretz Yisrael to the Jews. <laughs> like that. That was, that was his approach, very proud. Um, now, when the war ended in 1918, and the British Empire, British government officially said we're in favor of Balfour Declaration, and this was followed up a year later, in 1920 anyway, in the San Remo Treaty, which was signed by all the countries of the world. And the San Remo Treaty said that the territory of Palestine is being given to Britain by the world as a mandate, meaning, like Apotropos, for the purpose of implementing the Balfour Declaration. So it became an international law that the British have been giving Palestine, Israel, which at that time included Israel and Jordan, to the Jewish people for the purpose of setting up a homeland, national home, which is an ambiguous phrase. Uh, for the Jewish people, uh, you never had anything like this in history. So the Umos Olam are saying that Eretz Yisrael should go to the Jews. There's no question of Kutzas, Mamashikim Mashiach. So here you have it: a Gogu Magog, followed by Ikvis and Mashiach. It's not exactly the way we envision it, you know, with somebody riding on a on a white donkey, but this is the way it's coming out. And after the war, he returned to uh, Israel. Now came the controversial part, because when he returned to Palestine. The uh, Yushalayim, the Jews in Yushalayim, said, like we want you to be the chief rabbi. We haven't had uh, a rub with Ashkenaz in Yushalayim since Yushal Salanter died back in um, 1910. They never got around selecting anybody else. And he was unsure because Yushalayim includes now the old city and Meisharim, a lot of different factions, including the big anti Zionism, basically what we call today the Torah character types. Uh, wasn't exactly that way at that time, but very similar. And there are a lot of groups that are not going to agree to uh, any kind of Zionist-type situation. Uh, in other words, I don't know what they wanted, because this is the way the world has set it up. I don't want to go back under the Turks. But make a long story short, because it is a long story. Uh, Rav Cook was elected by the Ashkenazi Jews to be the Rav those who didn't agree seceded like the Confederacy succeeded made data Haredes. And Rechaim Zanafel the rub there. So two communities. The regular Kehillah, which was recognized by the Chilonim as well as by the Datim, 
But when I say the Datim, I don't mean the modern Orthodox. You have to understand, Rove of the Frumis, Yerushalayim, elected Rev Cook. Like C. Pese Frank and people like that. You see? Rove of the Frumis, Yerushalayim, elected Rev Cook. A minority, a strong minority, disagreed and they elected uh, Chaim Zunnefeld. Then you had all the politics. Okay? Now, um, that's where the Eidah Haredi comes from. It's not the regular Eidah, it's the Eidah Haredi. Now, why were they against them? There are ugly reasons and legitimate reasons. The ugly reasons have to do with money. You know, they, they were getting money from their way, they're afraid they were cooking to fear. And um, that's, I don't want to go into that, it's too much Lashon Haram. It's, uh, <laughs> I could, I'm, I'm going to skip that. But there are reasons, and those ugly reasons are, are the ones that moved these Pashkvilan guys to write all these uh, attacks on Rokok and call them and accuse them of Gilarai Shvichadam of Azar, where really they're the ones that, that are, um, were doing the, the, I don't know about the Gilarai, but they're certainly doing the Gezel uh, <laughs> and Geneva and all these other things. Now, uh, but there were legitimate reasons also. Because Rokok was coming in, part of his vision was, I'm going to be the chief rabbi of everybody, including the Chilonim and the others. The Zionist movement now took over Palestine. They never owned it before. But under the Balfour Declaration, under the San Remo Treaty, under what's called League of Nations, under the British Mandate, understand me well. The, the international treaty said that we're giving, listen closely, we're giving Palestine to the British in order to establish some kind of Jewish national something. So we're giving it indirectly to the Jewish people. The Jewish people are recognized as the Zionist movement. In other words, when we talk to the Jewish people, the official representatives of the Jewish people of the Zionist movement, which they call the Jewish Agency, the Sochnut. So that meant that the Sochnut, Chaim Weizmann and these guys, wanted to come in and own and control everything in, 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 in Israel, including Me'asharm. Understand? Now, uh, this was bad. Had they done that, they would have, you know, once I controlled the money then i force you to do what I want to do. This was the big fear that the Haredim had for the rest of the life of Rav Cook, the last 15 years. That because he's hooked up with the Zionists, they're aiming for control, and then they're going to use, and he would say, no, we're not going to do that. They're aiming for control, and they use the power of the purse to kill the Haredim. Haredim. You understand? We'll insist that they do this, we'll insist on that, get rid of Yiddish, bring in the Vrit, have mixed uh, classes. Who knows what they want to do? And this way, Chaim Zanafel was really uh, strongly opposed. So, you know, he respected Rav Cook for being Rav Cook, but he disagreed very strongly on this. These were legitimate reasons, because in my mind, had the Sachnot taken control, again, I'm using shorthand, had taken control of Sharam, uh, they would have done it to, to, to force unfirm things, I and mean, that's who they are. Um, you know, saying, this, this is how it goes. Nobody in the world says like this, Oh, I have uh, wonderful children. I'm going to write all my money away to my children and they should support me. <laughs> I'd be like King Lear, you know? They don't want to do that. So, uh, on the other hand, others said like this, there's nobody who's roy for this like of Cook. He's a gone, he's a tzaddik, he's a posek, you know, he knows all this stuff, he's a, he's a tremendous speaker, he's got big vision, he's obviously strong. Uh Who's better? Now, who's better? Uh, Chaim Zanafel doesn't re- uh, represent us, nor did Chaim Zanafel even seek to. The Eid Haredes, by definition, was the other kind of community. It's it's only for from, right? 
It's only for Fermis. In fact, it's only for real Fermis. That's what he said. I said he self-defined. It's like a Hirsch community. Ostrich community. You know, we are a from operation. So who, what about the non-from? That's what the non-from. But of course, like this. No, I want to be the rabbi for everybody and just try to move the goalposts, as I keep saying, forward here and there as much as possible. So it was incredibly complex. I can't describe, I can't describe it here in detail. I'm just trying to give you a little bit of an idea of where the controversies came from. Um, to make things even more interesting, this is 1920. The British established a government in Palestine, and they appointed the first high commissioner, which is what they called the governor general, um, Herbert Samuel. Herbert Samuel was a British Jewish politician. Uh, he, he, he was officially Orthodox. And his family sort of kept uh, kosher. Uh, he, this is a very complicated story, but let's put it this way. He, somebody came from a, what you might call a somewhat from background. All of his life, he's a member of the United Synagogue. Not that that means that much, but it, it did somewhat. And he understood where Orthodox Judaism is. Uh, he himself, I don't know, let's put it this way, he married a from girl. So um, now he's a high commissioner of Palestine. This is Lloyd George did this, because Lloyd George was the friend of the Jews. And the British are now coming to set up how to run the government in Palestine. Listen very closely. Until now, for hundreds of years, Palestine had been part of the Turkish Empire. Turkish Empire was a pre-modern empire. And so how does the Turkish Empire operate the way countries used to operate centuries ago? You divide people up by religion, not by race or ethnicity, but by religion. Are you Jewish, are you Christian, or are you Muslim? And if you're Christian, are you Catholic? Are you Protestant? Are you uh, Greek Orthodox? And so forth and so on. So, the way it used to be was, under the Turks, uh, the Dimi system. The Muslims have their whole apparatus of courts. The Christians are permitted by the Muslims to have their apparatus of courts, especially for things like marriage and divorce and things like that. Of course, the Muslim court is a higher court, so you can always appeal to the Muslim court. And same thing with the Jews. But Christians have denominations like the Catholics and the others, and therefore they have top-down organization. So, for example, let's say Catholic is an archbishop, and under him are the bishops, and under him are the lower guys. That's always the way it's been in Catholic Church. So, even under the Turks, the head guy to talk to was the archbishop, and he gave instructions to people under him. That's how they organized Catholic life. Um, it's similar for the other groups. The Jews have an absence of organization. That's who we are. So you have Ashkenazi, Sephardi, this, and that, and the other was crazy. And before the First World War, there was atheists, but it's all voluntary. And uh, it was expected that the Jewish shul of the Jews would kind of run their own affairs. But it was never organized. You know what I'm saying? Uh, who performs the, the marriages in Yaffa? Whoever's in Yaffa? Who performs the marriages in Chreis and Zichron Yaakov? No, where's the rabbi? Zichron Yaakov. What if there are two rabbis? Then two people performed the marriages, you know, like that. No, no organization whatsoever. But Sir Herbert Samuel and the British said like this, just like, we're now, we British, we don't want to tell the religions how to run their show. So the Muslims are going to organize a whole um, religious organization from top to bottom, headed by the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, and they will run all the Islamic courts and religious stuff. The Christians will deal with the head Christian guy, the archbishop, or whatever it is. What about the Jews? And since Herbert Samuel himself was Jewish, and he came from something of an Orthodox background, so bottom line, he said, like, yes, the Jews should get their act together and organize themselves. And so he got together with Rav Cook and some others, and basically, let's set up a Rabbanut. 
you know, I'm simplifying a very complex story, but that's what I'm doing. It's a podcast for crying out loud. Um, never had this before. So under the British government, the Jews will have a network like a Vatican, that uh, a network of rabbinim, what you and I today call the rabbinim, in which it's headed by the chief rabbi and his court, and they have lower courts, and they're all part of an organization. They're all paid for by the government, and um, or Jewish community, whatever it was. And they will service the members of that religious group. So all the Jews will now be under the rabbinate. Uh Now remember, this is going to have from and not from. So therefore, the, the group that runs the rabbinate and elects the rabbi has to include non from also, because you're including them in the group that you're going to, going to, going to control. There will be no secular marriage, uh, no civil marriage. The Turks never had that. And so, of Cook, I'm sure in my mind, he's like, this, wow, chief rabbi of Israel, next thing you know, chief rabbi of the world. I mean, it. No, you had Gog and Magog, then you had the Ikvis and Mashiach, you had the, the San Remo, uh, the Balfour Declaration. Now he's the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim, and now he's going to be chief rabbi of whole Eretz Yisrael. What's next? You know, in his mind, Mashiach is it's five minutes away. And so they set up, they passed the law, and they set up this whole thing called the Rabbanut, with, a, with an appeals court system and the whole rest of it. I remember the Alguda said, there's no such thing as an appeals court. Uh, the base in the basin. But that's not true. In Jewish history, a lot of times you had appeals courts. If you know Jewish history. In fact, Simcha Asaf, my favorite historian, who was an admirer of Cook, wrote a whole book just, Batek Dimitsid Ram, just to prove that. But anyway, um, they set up the Rabbanut, and here's Rav Cook, chief rabbi of Eretz Yisrael, officially recognized so by the British Empire. So, don't get better than this. Well, it would be better if the Haredim would agree to him. But they kept protesting. You don't represent us, okay? Now, there's no question. Rav Cook had ideas because he thought big, and he was uh, 55 at this time. Not so old, not so old. And he said, um, and he's the peak of his career. The whole world looked up to him. Jews around the world heard from him. People admired him. That year, 1920, 21, Rabbi Chaim asked him to go to America with the other big rabbis and raise money. For the Vada Yeshiva scene, he went on a famous visit to America and elsewhere with uh, the Kovnerov and uh, Moshe Mordechai Epstein and those, those big rabbis. To the peak of his career, and he was a good speaker, like I say, and everything else. So, I mean, he came to Baltimore, he came out everywhere, and now I'll be chief rabbi of the world. No, it's just like you couldn't have predicted a few years ago that there'd be one rabbi in it for whole Eretz Israel, and I'll be it. So if we do our work right, we'll organize the Jews in Lithuania and in Poland and this place and that place, and we'll get it right, and the whole Jewish people will be organized in a proper way. And Kimitsiun Tati started Rosh Hashanah So basically, whatever he said, this is heading to a Sanhedrin. I just want to be clear about that. And that's what freaked out the uh, the Haredim, because if you're going to try and make a Sanhedrin, it'll be ter- they said it would be a terrible thing. Why? then the pressure will be to make uh, changes. And the changes are always going to be to the left, never to the right. right? You're never going to get anybody to, keep, to stay more from. You only have to change the laws to accommodate the non from. So that's the road to hell. Right? The, the, the power of the Orthodox is they're always able to leverage their non-organization. You can't change any of the din because it's like punching a, a you know, a, a, what is it? A, a pillow that, that that's very large. Wherever you punch it, it's elsewhere. Uh, so what are you going to get? 
you get the Satmar to change on this, but then the elders won't change on that. Uh, the disorganization of the Orthodox world has actually been a source of strength. But he didn't see it that way. He saw, no, we'll make it Sanhedrin, and we'll issue Takhanas, and it'll be great. And he thought in his way that we're able to move the goalpost not a few yards, but a significant amount of time. Uh, this was the real threat that the Haredim perceived from Av Cook in the 1920s. Luther did. He also dreamed, because he, I'll tell you again, the sickness of Mashiach, so what's, now's the time for implementing dreams, of making the yeshiva of the world, not just Merkaz Arab the way it was, make a world yeshiva. I think it's me, myself, and I, because I'm at this farm. It's fascinating. You should read the speech he gave at the opening of the Merkaz Arab, which is a small operation in Israel those days, turned into nothing. And here he gives a whole speech. I, I, if I had the time, I would quote it, but it's very lengthy, like everything he wrote. And he said, we have to think in big terms and not little terms. And you guys should uh, think of a glorious future. Dehainu, we should now not think of, you know, just learning Gemara and writing a chiddush here and a chiddush there. We need a Steinsalt. He didn't use these words. But he said, you need a Gemara, with, which everybody can read. It should have an orach at the bottom to tell you what, you know, what, the, what the din is and iunim. I tell you again, I don't know Steinsdorf myself, but I'm sure the guy Steinsdorf must have read this speech and worked backwards. He also said we need an encyclopedia Talmudit. Again, not using these words, but that's what it is, the way he describes it. So everything will be clear and, and, and available to anybody, all the scholars. This will revolutionize Torah scholarship in the world and make it available to the masses. He also wanted a beer, a grow, that because um, he's held from the grow, that it should be a you know, it's so uh, short and succinct. There should be a full explanation. Like they started to do a number of years ago. I don't think they were finished it. Eli, something Eliyahu with the yellow cover. I mean, when I was near Israel, he said, I don't see it anymore. But I think it's on Hebrew books. Where, you know, they did X number of beer or gras and you, you know, put like a kahati at the bottom. He wanted them a sifter. He describes exactly, again, not using his words, but to make all the sheetas. Uh, in his words, it was like a that's more or less what you and I today call the Masifta and the similar works. Um, these are remarkable ideas. And they happened in the last 100 years. See, he foresaw them, and this is what he means by godless. By taking the shot, like you, again, it's not the same thing exactly, Art Scroll Gomorrah. It's going to open up to the, a world to people. You know what I'm saying? It'll increase Havana. And he said, you guys in Israel, this will give you uh, Parnosa, and you will have what to show for your labors. So it's the idea of saying, you don't just learn to learn, you learn to produce, and not just your own Chidushim or Kama like that. You produce something that can be used by whole Kali Yisrael. Right? It's a very interesting speech. Now, this is what you mean by godless, not cotonous. By the way, Yisrael Salanter had the same ideas, although Yisrael Salanter was doing it because he thought it would help the modern Jews to be uh, closer to Torah, you know, get interested in opening a Gemara once in a while. Um, Nothing came of these proposals in his lifetime. But the literary proposals have come to pass in the last uh, hundred years, have they not? There is a Steinsalz, there is an art scroll, there is an encyclopedia, medium, there is a Masifta, and so on and so forth. Uh, by the way, I'm sure Rob Zevin, who was a big, big, big fan of uh, Cook, did the encyclopedia Talmudin because he's the one who started it because of his speech. But uh, the idea of the chief rabbinate becoming epis in the world not materialize. I think we all know that. Uh, the Rabbin of today is a joke. You can't say the, the occupiers of the Chief Rabbin inspires throughout the world. 
Rav Kook was a, a unique phenomenon. I think, by the way, just interestingly, that he was um, influencing these ideas by what was going on in the world Jewish scholarship was the keenest period. It's a lot of a gathering together and organizing information. Uh, you know, there's a lot of Bialik and uh, Ginsburg. And that, that was what was going on at that time. And by the way, it's a great idea. That's why you and I are lucky to live in a period where all this Torah knowledge is being organized in, in gettable ways. The yeshiva did not turn, the, the rabbi did take off, and the yeshiva did not take off. His ideas were totally unrealistic uh, and even weird. He said, we should learn the Gemara here. We should also learn all of Mordevuchim, uh, and we should learn all of the poetry. And there's no time for all this kind of stuff. He himself, because of his funny youth, was able to put together, you know, starting on his own, these little base managers at his own time and pace over many, many years, and he was able to acquire this kind of knowledge. It's not something you're teaching the yeshiva format. I mean, give me a break. Uh, and I'll tell you something else. He had negative, I don't know, he didn't like the yeshiva's style of learning. I'll tell you something amazing. When he set up this uh, America was a cook, he got an offer of Shimon Shkup, who was already an old man. He said, I want to live out the rest of my life in Israel and give Shir in Eretz Israel. I'll be a rabbi in your yeshiva. Now, uh, Rav Cook said, no, we're not interested in, in, in that kind of alumnus. Now, me, myself, and I, if I was starting yeshiva in Yerushalayim in the 1920s, and I got an offer from Shimon Shkup, said, I'll come and teach you, I'd take him up on it. That's instant. You bring hundreds of guys to you. But uh, Cook didn't think that way. And so his ideas didn't go anywhere either. Now, um, it's also true that during the years that he was chief rabbi in Israel in the 20s and 30s, the Zionist movement, the Jewish agency, had to control the Aliyah. They made what I call the Gucci Aliyah, which artificially created a militantly secular Yishuv, because they only would let most of the uh, certificates to get to Israel to be non-from people. And Rokok couldn't stop it. The Haredim said, what are you, why, why are you going along with this? Atanosi Yalla Pashim. Or maybe you're just a useful idiot. Or maybe you're uh, uh, an impractical uh, mystic. Uh, the yeshiva world, very interesting one, because these were his friends and his colleagues. Uh, the the Litfish yeshivas looked at Rokuk and they said, there's no question he's one of the greatest living gonim. He said, by them, Lomdus is the, is, is the key. And the, you know he knows everything. He has unusual deus. But don't besmirch him. But, uh, you know, so in other words, uh, he cooperated very fruitfully with the, uh, with the Torah world, the yeshiva world. Uh, maybe people know it, maybe they don't know it in, in the 1920s and 30s. He was in, I know people, we used to have a, somebody here in Baltimore, Yukovsky, he was uh, learning by Baruch Bear, and then he had to get out of the army, and he wrote to Rav Cook to help this guy get to Israel, and he did. No, they were in constant contact with him. On the other end, the Satmar Rebbe said, that he's uh, the wicked, most wicked person who ever lived. You hear what I said? I, mean, I, I wouldn't call Rav Cook the most wicked person who ever lived. The river. Then he said he's a Tartuf. He's a he's a phony. He's a he, he's a uh, a servant of the devil. It's a you know. Let me put it this way: a lot of bad stuff was said about him, and especially in these Pashkevillin, and these were um, all lies, and the people said were liars. And uh, we know even in Israel today, you have a lot of these liar types that put up these. Uh, and Hara um, announcements. I say when I say liars, I mean, they say things about you not true. And what are you going to do? Israel's head, Israel's the headquarters of many things, a lot of good things. Israel's also the headquarters of, of the Lashon Hara. Uh, that's what it is. Uh, and then of course, he, I, it's, it's the hours late. I'm almost finished. So I'm going to close it down over here. As I say, he died in the early thirties. The rest you have to look up on yourself. I want to make one last um, 
observation. Literally, last observation. Rav Kook, uh, the ideas were formed in an optimistic era. It came up in the Pandasiecho. The 20th century has made these optimistic ideas not play out. You had the Holocaust and the aftermath. In world culture and Western culture, we no longer look at the modern period as an optimistic period. The great intellectual reality of post-1945 is what they call postmodernist, which is you reject the optimism. Uh, you don't see Western culture as the be-all and end-all. What would have, It's always interesting to me, if Cook died in 1935, what if he would have made it to 1945 and seen the Holocaust? How would he see it? What would if he gone twenty lived another 20 years? It would have been only uh, 90 um, and seen the rise of Israel. But in death, he assumed mythic proportions. Uh, he's the... Uh, the patron saint of religious Zionists, and he and he was, uh, even for the Chilonim, as I said before, he's the only uh, religious figure that they look at. Uh, if you uh, are interested in the Lambdas aspect, you can read the writings of Zevon. He was a giant gom. He read his Charles and Shuvas. No time to go in here. The fears that the Charedim had did not materialize, right? The, as you see, uh, Israel didn't turn out the way they feared it would. Um, so he's an ambiguous and complex figure. I haven't touched on as many writings. I'll just tell you very briefly, I can't read the O-Road. I mean, I've read some of it. It doesn't work for me. It's opaque. And now uh, Rabbi Avivi says it's all based on Kisiaria. But the Igros, I would recommend everybody to read. The Igros are not hard to read at all. And they're very, very interesting. Maybe you maybe you won't understand that I do, because you have to know a lot of history, where the letters are written to him, and to whom and when. I'll end by saying this. He perceived that Israel would turn out all right. I don't think he saw exactly the collapse of cultural Zionism and the rise of the yeshiva world, the black hand to keep us through God, and that the yeshiva world would be bankrolled by the state, but mystics never see the details, they just see the horizon colors. Um, as I said before, if you want to get into his writings, which are many, and are, you know, sedulously cultivated by him, I think the world's divided into two types, those who are turned on by his writings and those who are not turned on by his writings. I'm definitely one that never been turned on by his writings, especially in the Oropes. Um, but that's, you know, that's a matter of individual uh, taste. Or his uh, book on Chuva, I always found it, you know, fluffy and, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, had the poetic way. Doesn't, it doesn't work for me, but it worked for a lot and still does. And uh, I think I've given you enough to chew on, and more than that, you'll have to do some research on your own. So uh, we'll leave it at that. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.